Support for the Source podcast comes from UT Health San Antonio, South Texas' largest academic research institution, where what is discovered in its labs translates into life-changing patient care. More at groundbreakingresearch.org. Live from the John L. Santico studio, this is The Source from Texas Public Radio. I'm David Martin Davies. Humanity has been captivated by the mysteries of the moon since we've been able to look up into the night sky and wonder. The moon has been more than an object of marvel. It has stabilized Earth, allowing it to become the home for complex life and civilizations. And there is now a new race to get to the moon, and the moon's story is still also being written. What questions do you have about the moon? We're joined by Rebecca Boyle, author of The Moon, How Earth's Celestial Companion Transformed Earth, the Planet, Guided Evolution, and Made Us Who We Are. And Rebecca, welcome to The Source. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So the questions that uh, NPR listeners are demanding answers to uh, about the moon Capitalized or not? AP Styles says, do not capitalize the moon in your book. It is capitalized. Uh, is AP wrong? Yes, and I am on a mission to correct the AP Style Guide. Um, I actually have uh, submitted a request to them about this because the moon is a place. It should be a proper noun. It's a place just like Paris or Austin or Earth, and all of those are capitalized. You know, it's a proper noun. It's the reason why I think it's often lowercase is because it's the only moon that we have. So it's like you don't really need to differentiate, you know, Paris, France from Paris, Texas. But I think that we do. And I think it's also because until Galileo found the moons of Jupiter, we didn't think there were other moons. So it was just like, well, it's, that's that one place, that one Luna, our own moon. But right, now Luna, we know there are other moons. That's the issue. So AP will say if you want that's to capitalize something, yeah. that's the Latin or Greek name. Luna, that's where we get lunacy, lunatic, uh, influenza yes. or from Luna. Yes, that's right. But no one calls it that in English. <laughs> so I think we should still capitalize the moon, just moon being the location that we have set foot on, the only satellite of our planet and, you know, when we talk about other moons, those are lowercase. We talk about Earth in your hands in your garden. That's lowercase e. But the Earth, where we live, is capital E. So, the yeah, sun is also <laughs> supposed to be lowercase, unless you call it by its proper name, which is helos. And sol, is, S-O-L, is uh, the Latin name for our sun. And, yeah, if you call it by its, its you know, Latin appellation, I guess it's capitalized. But I, I also capitalize the sun because I think it's it's the sun. I mean, there are other stars, but we only have one that's ours. And where would we be without them? We would be nowhere. So, you know, these are the questions that demand answers. And if you got a question or comment about the moon, give us a call, 833-877-8255, 833-TPR-TALK. You can send us an email to the source at tpr.org. How did the moon come to be? This is actually a surprisingly complicated story, and I, this kind of blew my mind when I started writing this book. I kind of felt like we should probably know the answer to this pretty clearly, and the fact that we don't is is an enduring mystery. But we know a few basic things. We know that something really horrible happened on the day that the moon was formed from Earth. 
probably something the size of present-day Mars thwacked into our planet, and both of these things were totally obliterated and resulted in this cloud of debris. Like, you wouldn't see a crater from this. This was not an impact. It was more like an obliteration. And somehow, the Moon and Earth 2.0 re-coalesced from this cloud of debris, and we still don't really know exactly how, and we may never know. We, we have theory that can help inform how this may have happened, but um, the particulars are still very hotly debated, actually, in, in scientific conferences. So this was a catastrophic event, to put it mildly. Both spheres uh, became uh, like molten and, uh, they, they, and mixed together. Is that, is that why uh, when we look at what we have of the moon that it's very similar to, to Earth substances? Yeah, it turns out that, you know, when the Apollo rocks came back here um, in the 1960s and 70s, we examined them and it looked like the moon was pretty different from Earth. But then about 30 years later, people looked at them again with more advanced instruments and better scientific te techniques and learned that the moon rocks chemically are pretty much identical to Earth rocks chemically, which is weird. Like that doesn't make much sense in terms of physics because we know how planets, well, we have some idea about how planets form around the sun and maybe other stars. We know that material condenses and clumps together in certain locations. And because of where they are, they have this sort of fingerprint of their origins. It's like an accent. You know, I grew up in Colorado and I have maybe that kind of accent. Somebody who grows up in New York has a different accent. You can tell someone's origin based on that information. And that's the same case for rocks. You can look at a Mars rock and be very sure that it's from Mars, not Earth, just based on its chemical contents. So something very strange and bad, violent, would have had to happen for the moon and the Earth to be made of the same stuff at the same time. And so that's one of the things that gives us this story, that the moon is part of Earth. And it's not like it was the remains of this impactor, which is what people thought for a long time. But it's it was more that whatever happened to shatter the Earth and the moon, the moon-forming impactor, both were totally transformed so utterly that they are now chemically indistinguishable. And so the moon very much is a part of Earth as opposed to a separate body. It also served to stir, stir up the Earth, you know, because if it was just left alone, then the cooling, all of the heavier elements would have uh, gone towards the core. But this impact supposedly stirred. So that's why we have iron and gold and heavy, heavier metals in, in our mantle. This is one theory, yeah, that the moon forming impact, you know, just kind of remixed the insides of the Earth so fundamentally that material settled out in a different way. And there's actually really recent research that looks at whether the impactor, which we call Theia, which is the, the mother of the moon in Greek mythology. She's the mother of Selene. Um, Theia is this primordial body that would have impacted Earth and been totally destroyed. There is new evidence that maybe, and again, this is something that we don't know, we may never be sure, Theia's remains are within our mantle. So there are these two weird kind of blobby provinces in Earth's mantle, which show up on seismic data. That's how they're visualized. Like we can't actually see them. But if you could slice Earth in half and look at it like a cross section, like a, you know, a gumball cut open, you would see these kind of blobby provinces around the core. Imagine like a person wearing earmuffs. That's what they kind of look like. 
And uh, recent research suggests that this might be the remains of Thea somehow interred within our planet. Right, and helps uh, Earth become the Earth we have today and, and a host for life and giving us what uh, allows us to stabilize the planet. Lots of ways that the moon does that. We'll talk more about that uh, coming back as we talk about our moon, the book, How Earth's Celestial Companion Transformed the Planet. This is The Source on Texas Public Radio. Back after this break. Bells will ring, tingle-ling-a-ling, tingle-ling-a-ling, and you'll sing the tabella. Hearts will play, tippy-tippy-tay, tippy-tippy-tay, like a guitar and When the stars make you drool, just like a pastefazool at some more. When you dance down the street with a cloud of dust. Support for this podcast comes from Big Sun Solar, committed to helping businesses strive towards energy independence and conservation. Solar is a great way for businesses to lower their carbon footprint. More at bigsunsolar.com slash TPR. This is The Source on Texas Public Radio. I'm David Martin Davies. We're talking about our moon. The book is Our Moon, How Earth's Celestial Companion Transformed the Planet, Guided Evolution, and Made Us Who We Are. We're joined by the author, Rebecca Boyle. Um, and, you know, the moon has uh, guided us. Uh, it's created a, a big concept of our of time, uh, fertility. Uh, it has uh, helped us throughout history in other ways to uh, kind of explain things in, in sort of a mystical way. Rebecca, how has the moon uh, been a such a, uh, what do you think are the major influences in history? Oh, wow. I mean, while writing this book, I kind of came to think that it was involved in almost everything in, in human history. I mean, I, I tried to trace our relationship with the moon through time. And I think I started by looking at timekeeping itself because this is, the moon is the most obvious way to sort of divide up time. The sun is, you know, you know, comes every day, and it changes where it is in the sky over the course of the year. But if you want to set time according to how we live our lives, you know, a few days at a time, maybe a month at a time, the moon is the way that you do it. I mean, the word month itself comes from the word moon. It's an old English word, moons. That's a way of dividing time. And we have 12 of those because there are about 12 lunar cycles in a solar year. And so I realized that people across time, across Earth, across cultures, figured out ways to use the moon to tell time and to sort of orient themselves in time, which is a pretty uniquely human thing to do. I mean, we talk about like squirrels can save nuts and things like that as a way of planning, but those are more seasonally driven. As far as we know, humans are the only animals that can sit there and say, you know, in six moons from now, I'm going to go on vacation or in the eighth moon of the year, that's when I have to harvest my crops or whatever. And the moon is a really useful tool for that. And today is Monday. And so, and so, which is another, today is Monday. Today Lunas. is the moon's day. Lunas. Yeah, that's right. Today is the moon's day. And it's, we're just a couple of days past the full moon. 
And yeah, I mean, we still use the seven day week is derived from dividing the lunar cycle in four because it really has four distinct phases. And so I think that's kind of the earliest way that people used the moon and it sort of set us on our present course. And you write about Caesar and his connection to the moon and the uh, the, the, the the new calendar that he brought about with the moon. Yeah. He's like my favorite person from history. And um, I mean, ever since I was younger, I've always been a little bit obsessed with Julius Caesar and, and his empire. Um, but yeah, he's the first person to divorce the moon from time. And he does this after he's been in Egypt and met Cleopatra and some of her people and her, her mathematicians in Alexandria. And they use a solar calendar in Egypt and they use the stars to sort of fix their year more than they used the moon. And the reason that this is important is because there are only 12 moons in a solar year. And if you count out 12 lunar cycles, that's about 354 days, but there are 365.25 days in a solar year. That's one reason why this year is a leap year. Next month, we have an extra day in February to be able to tie our calendar to the sun. Um, but Caesar realized that you know the moon, if you use the moon as a calendar over a couple of years, you're out of whack. And if you use the eighth moon of the year as your harvest festival, for instance, pretty soon you're going to have that festival in the middle of spring or something. It makes no sense. And there were a lot of times where Romans, people in Rome would have to sort of correlate the lunar and solar year by adding a day or adding a month here and there. But before he took over as emperor, people didn't do that or they forgot or there was like chaos and bureaucracy and Rome was really big at the time. So people in far-flung provinces wouldn't have gotten word about the new calendar change. So people were out of sync. So he was like, we're done with this lunacy. <laughs> and kind of just says the moon is no longer how we're going to mark the months. We're going to just start it on January 1st. And we're going to have, you know, these number of days each month. And the moon has nothing to do with it anymore. So yeah, this is sort of the first tragic <laughs> downfall of the moon in terms of our relationship with time. So that first year, the Caesar year, it was a 440-some-odd-day year to make the adjustment. Yeah. So my question is, like, what, I guess that was a giveaway to people who rent, renters. You know, if you're paying by the month, mm. you know, yeah. <laughs> you got some free days. And if you're, you know, you're a dictator in Rome, you're Julius Caesar, it's easier for you to push off the next election or push off the next, you know, market or whatever. You, you, can, you can be in charge of the way that people use time. And I, I think he's just one example of many of people who realize that the guy who controls the calendar really controls society. And so if you have a tools or the techniques needed to bring the lunar year and solar year into alignment, that person has a lot of power and that person can make a lot of decisions about everyone else in their society. And I think he's kind of my favorite example of people doing that. So we did manage uh, to go to the moon, and uh, that's it's it, that happened. Uh, well, let me ask you quickly: What do you think about when people tell you that it was fake? How do you respond to people like that? I mean, you know, I, this is one of those things I think is just sort of a function of our current age of disinformation and and mistrust and authority and received wisdom. And you know, I think that's it makes some a certain kind of sense. And in some ways, I have empathy for people who don't believe it because it is so odd. If you really stop and think about it, it's a bizarre thing that we did. Let's put some young men on a exploding column of fire and put them on the moon just because, you know, and in the 
with the, the time that has passed since Apollo, it's now this sort of cultural artifact and this distant memory. But if you really pull back and think about how weird it was and how bizarre and dangerous and just unusual, it, I'm not totally surprised that people right now don't believe that it happened. But I believe it happened. I've seen the moon rocks. You know, it's I, I don't doubt it. Yeah, so it's so unbelievable that we managed to do it with the level of technology that we had at the time, you know, the computer computing power of the of the spaceship, the lunar lander, was is nothing compared to even what I have in my, on my phone. So people would say, "Well, oh, and, it's not even close." Yeah, and you know, and Armstrong, you know, landed it just by eyeballing the the lunar surface. Yeah, I mean, you needed a really trained and really brave pilot to pull off what he did, and you needed really brilliant human computers, which were the word that you know, we use for the technicians that actually did the calculations. And without those people, men and women in Houston doing these orbital trajectories, we would never have gotten there. And I think it is kind of hard to imagine that happening in that time, in that era of our history, but it did. So the whole, you know, race to the moon that we had uh, in the 60s and 70s, and it, and you know, I, it's phenomenal, of course, it's the technical achievement, but I, you know, if it wasn't, we're going to send a man to the moon and he's going to walk on the moon that the po the poetic power of that uh you know surpassed everything else i mean yeah it was important to do it and all the science but still it came down to we put a man on the moon and uh the moon being this destination which we've scared stared up into the sky since the creation of uh, humanity that's 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 made it so powerful and I still think it is that powerful. I mean, just imagining the, the guts and the bravado that it took to pull that off, but also just the connection that we developed with the moon. You know, my favorite picture from Apollo is not the like iconic one of Buzz Aldrin saluting the flag or the footprint or the one where you can kind of see Neil Armstrong's reflection in Buzz Aldrin's visor. My favorite picture is this one that Armstrong took of Aldrin climbing down the ladder. And it's kind of like a weird action shot. Like Buzz Aldrin's leg is hanging out over the ladder as he's climbing down. Neil Armstrong sat down so gently that the eagle legs were sort of perched on the lunar soil. It was supposed to sink in more. They thought it might. And so the ladder was pretty far from the ground. It was kind of a big jump. And this picture is of Aldrin about to make that jump. And I love this photo because it's from the lunar surface. So for the first time, a human mind is occupying the moon, looking out from it, as opposed to what has happened for all of human history, which is us looking up at it. And I think that's one of the most transformative things that happened from Apollo, that we left our world and we went to another world and we could see our world from a different vantage. And it really did change our whole perspective on our place in the universe. But what did we also lose in that exchange where the moon I mean, was made of green cheese? People kind of joked about mm -hmm. it one time or thought there was oceans or on, on the on the moon. Um, it was a place of mystery, science fiction, Edgar Rice Burroughs and his moon men stories, a moon women of Mars uh, and of the, of the moon. Uh, so, I mean, did we lose something in that exchange by becoming more uh, knowledgeable? I think... There's a sense in which we may have lost some of the mystery. You know, we knew that it wasn't made of cheese. We knew that it wasn't going to swallow up 
the astronauts like quicksand, which they also were worried about, actually. We didn't know for sure that would happen. We didn't know if it would have lunar germs that would come home and create a pandemic on Earth. You know, there was a lot of mysteries that we didn't understand. And the moon kind of became more real after we walked on it. We realized it really is just a rock. It really is just this, like, spectral, kind of empty, desolate world. But I think in some ways it brought us closer to it because we realized it is actually earthy. It's like Earth in that it's rocky. It's It has this sort of terrestrial sense to it. It's part of who we are. And I don't think it's less interesting having now walked there and brought pieces of it home to study. I think it's in some ways a lot more interesting because it's a real place as opposed to this imagined realm that we can only imagine ourselves being or place ourselves there in our minds. This uh, coarse, jagged dust, moon dust, that uh, because it was ionized, it would stick to everything. It became quite the bane uh, for the yeah. astronauts who walked on the moon. Talk about that. I think this is like something that people don't think about enough. Even when you talk about going up there again now, the dust is really going to be a problem. It's going to be so annoying and difficult and even a health hazard. You know, the astronauts talked about breathing it in, it was so fine, like powdery, almost like kitchen flour, that it, it was easy to inhale. And they all ended up getting these sort of head cold symptoms where they felt congested and their noses were like itchy and scratchy breathing it in because it is sharp. I mean, it's weird to think about this because dust on Earth mostly comes from life. It comes from us, you know, like human skin cells and hair and pet dander and pollen, all these things of that life generates or what make dust on earth that we mostly experience but on the moon it's all sharp there's no water there's no wind there's no you know ocean tide to weather the rocks and beat them down and soften them so they're all little jagged little sharp daggers and imagine breathing that in it would be just really irritating at best and it was for apollo and it will be for the next generation of moonwalkers well they're planning on having the spacesuits like permanently kind of outside the capsule and you kind of enter from the backside and to keep all that dust out. It's like a major part of the engineering that they're looking at. Yes, it really is going to be a big problem to solve. And I think it will be, it will be easier to prevent it from becoming a contaminant or like an irritant. If you have like an airlock, you know, we imagine people docking right now on the space station and there's an airlock where you pressurize and the capsule people can enter from the Soyuz or the SpaceX Dragon capsules that take them up there. And that'll probably be how we try to treat the moon in the future. But that's a lot of equipment and a lot of weight and a lot of just mass to get there. So it will take a little while before we have, you know, a nice pressurized clean room where we can dust ourselves off. So uh, coming up on another break, but when I come back, I want to ask you about why did we stop going to the moon? Did we abandon the moon and then what's changed uh, to make us want to go back? Is it still just the uh, flex of uh, our economy, our civilization versus American civilization versus another country? Why, why go to the moon? And our phone lines are open. The number is 833-877-8255, 833-TPR-TALK. We'll be right back.
Support for TPR comes from the Lawton family of restaurants. Cappy's, Cappuccinos, Mama's Cafe, La Fonda on Main, and Jingu House. Located in San Antonio. Their diverse menus and hours can be viewed at LawtonRestaurants.com. I stand at your gate And the song that I sing is of moonlight I stand and I wait For the touch of your hand in the dew This is The Source on Texas Public Radio, and we're talking about the moon and playing some songs inspired by the moon. Our author is Rebecca Boyle. Her book is Our Moon, How Earth's Celestial Companion Transformed the Planet Guided Evolution Made Us Who We Are. Uh, so many songs, uh, Rebecca, about the moon. <laughs> yeah, I actually have a Spotify playlist I made for my book. Um, and if you search on like Spotify Our Moon playlist, it will come up and it was fun because there are so many choices and I tried to be thoughtful about what they represented. So the one we just heard is sounds like a lyrical version of Moonlight Serenade, which yes. is Glenn Miller Orchestra. Yes. And so Ella I have that on there in the beginning. It, okay, that was Ella Fitzgerald. So I have a version of that early on. Um, I also have another Ella Fitzgerald. I think I have her version of Blue Moon. And I kind of try to put them in the order of what the book represents. So the early formation of the moon, World War II history is early in the book, and then we go through evolution and then into the modern era. And so, yeah, it was fun because there's so much to choose from. There's so much music and poetry and literature and art, and it's almost hard to know where to begin sometimes. So the uh, we went to the moon, and then we didn't go back. Uh, why? Why? I think there are a few reasons why, and, and one is, frankly, just the cost, you know, it was, Apollo was extraordinarily expensive and difficult. And we did it because of the Cold War. And, you know, once we did it, we did it a few times, it was like, all right, well, we got up there, we got some rocks, we hit some golf balls, we drove car around a few times. All right, you know, we're good. And I think that's part of why it was just because it was so expensive. And even at the time, it was beloved when it happened, the first landing happened. But Within a couple of years, people were like, oh, yeah, okay, cool, moving on. It was during Vietnam. It was during the civil rights movement. There was a lot of other issues to worry about here on Earth. And I think it was somewhat of an easy decision by the Nixon administration to cancel Apollo once we'd been there a few times. Um, it's also really risky. You know, we had Apollo 1 just had the anniversary of, of that event. We lost three astronauts. 
And then we had Apollo 13, you know, luckily they all made it home, but they, they very much may not have. And it becomes a calculated risk. Like how much do we need to go back to get more samples when we've already proven we can do this? Do we want to keep risking national treasure and, you know, our, our young men to do this? And I think there's some more maybe ephemeral reason why, which is that we did it. And it was so transformative that it couldn't be repeated. And there's some almost like letting go. <laughs> like we we did that. We crossed that boundary. We, we crossed that threshold. And we can never do it again anew. And so it becomes this sort of, okay, well, let's let's move forward. And, you know, I think a lot of it is just national attention on space exploration and the cold war ended in the 80s we didn't have as much motivation to go it kind of petered out um but now all of a sudden it's changing and we now have a lot of people interested in going back up there our number is 833-TPR-TALK 833-877-8255 do you think we ought to go back to the moon or should we leave the moon alone uh, we'd love to hear uh, what you have to say about that. Part of the problem with our space programs is that as we change presidential administrations, a uh, new president comes in and they want to they want to they want to shake the etch a sketch and and forget about what the previous president did and come up with their own space agenda. Biden actually didn't do that with the Trump space yeah. agenda. So uh, do we need more of that? I think that's probably what will help carry NASA into the future. Yeah, is a is a more, you know, graceful transition of power when it comes to the space agency, and that's one reason why NASA has this sort of new vision of commercial space exploration because it kind of bolsters the entire economy around space and doesn't rely on NASA as the only provider of services. You know, if if they can sort of seed a lunar economy or a space economy and other companies are trying to go up there for their own reasons, then NASA can rely on those people as well. And it kind of hardens the entire enterprise against political winds. And we'll, I mean, we'll see if, you know, we'll see what happens in the next election this year, what happens with Artemis, which is the new lunar exploration program under NASA. And I think it'll be interesting to see. I, there's, there's been lots of cost overruns as ever with space. There's been lots of delays and yet, there are these private companies trying to get up to the moon now and using NASA money to get there, but they have their own customers. They have their own motivations. And I think that's one reason NASA is trying to encourage that is to let things happen apart from political pressure. What does a lunar economy look like? Uh, what do they have on the moon that's so valuable? We already talked about how the mineral situation is pretty similar to what we have here. Is there something of value on Mar on on the moon on the moon that we we have to go get? There are a few ideas about that, and one is that there's there are some rare materials like helium three, for instance, is this like volatile form of helium which could be used in theory to power nuclear reactors, which could be used for power generation. There's really the main reason why people are interested in going to the moon for commercial purposes is probably water. We know the moon has a lot of water, and it's this is not like lakes like we have here on Earth where it's like a deposit, but more likely it's either ice at the bottom of dark craters or in hydrated minerals. But if there is water on the moon, and we know there is some form of it because of lots of instruments that have been looking for it, then in theory you can harvest that either for just use 
as water or more likely as rocket fuel. If you can split the hydrogen and oxygen bonds that make up water molecules, then you can have hydrogen and oxygen, which is rocket fuel. So you could get to Mars maybe or an asteroid or, you know, have to take less fuel with you to get back home. So that's that's one view of the moon as a commercial enterprise, as, as a depot for fueling future exploration in space. But we'll see. I mean, I think the earliest phases of a commercial lunar economy would be things like supporting other lunar customers. You know, the first landers are going to go up there with solar power and they can sell that off. If you have an instrument, you want a power on the moon, you can use solar power from a lander who brought you up there and then you're a customer of that lander company. And that's what is happening now. I mean, we had an attempt for that just this this past month. And the first one called Peregrine, which is built by a company out of Pittsburgh called Astrobotic, Peregrine Lander did not make it to the moon. They had a fuel issue right after launch. And so they ended up burning it up in the atmosphere a couple of weeks ago. But there's another one launching here in a couple of weeks in mid-February. And this is a different company in Basin, Texas called Intuitive Machines. And they're carrying up a whole bunch of cargo for NASA, but also private companies. And the more of them that try, the more will succeed and the more will eventually be up there. And that's kind of the idea is like, let's just foster development of these things and we'll see what happens and customers will come. So the Paragon, uh, the event there, there was some controversy. It was carrying uh, human remains, including uh, some from Arthur C. Clarke. And uh, there was the idea was that it would crash on the surface of the moon. Uh, and there are people who consider the moon to be sacred, a uh, religious uh, figure, uh, the Navajo Nation being one of them. And they were objecting to the fact that uh, human remains would be put on the moon and they saw it as a desecration of their sacred moon. Um, so the, the, the rumor mill had it that uh, NASA deliberately just said, okay, we're not going to crash Peregrine. We're going to instead bring it back to planet Earth and let it burn up in the atmosphere. Uh, because they didn't want to upset the the people who thought that. Uh, have you heard that? And, and what are your thoughts? Well, I don't know if it, the reason why they returned it to Earth was necessarily for that appeasement of that concern. But I mean, there was a concern that it was going to, no matter what, it would have either landed safely or it would have crashed carrying human and cremated remains. And this was viewed as an act of desecration by the Navajo, the Navajo Nation president sent a letter to NASA in December asking to delay the launch. And NASA sort of, I mean, I don't want to say they punted because that seems a little unfair, but they kind of did in, in that it wasn't up to them. You know, this was a commercially built, privately funded, you know, private lander with lots of customers, including NASA. But they were not the only ones. And so they really didn't have much say as they would have if it had been like an Apollo program where it was purely built by NASA for NASA. NASA was a getting a ride share, you know? Right. And so they, they sort of felt like it's on our place to say what they can't take up there. But I think it does raise the question that, you know, the moon doesn't belong to NASA. It doesn't belong to the U S or anyone else. It doesn't belong to the Navajo. It doesn't belong to the Chinese. You know, we all have a piece of it because it's part of all of us. And I think that means that anyone who goes there should at least keep these things in mind, keep other people in mind and their ideas of it in mind before we start just trampling all over it 
especially as we look to you know make money and be there more permanently i think at least we owe ourselves and the moon a more thoughtful consideration of what it represents all right, we're going to talk more about that when we come back from the break. 833-877-8255. The source continues right after this. You're listening to The Source on Texas Public Radio. I'm David Martin Davies. We're talking about Our Moon. That's the book uh, written by Rebecca Boyle, and she joins us. And she can take your questions and comments, 833-877-8255, 833-TPR-TALK. So the idea about the moon being sacred, the Navajo Nation objecting to the crash landing of Paragons, and that didn't happen. But they also objected to the Apollo missions to the moon as well. We're getting ready to enter a phase where there's going to be a lot of activity on the moon uh, probably robots, uh, strip mining parts of the moon. Uh, there's it's going to be the idea of a total, I mean, it's we've already kind of marred it up a little bit with our landing and rovers and things, but uh, what should we be thinking about having a pristine moon no more? I mean, I think this is an interesting thing to think about. It's, it's I, I don't advocate that we don't go back. I don't want to be overly prescriptive in what we do to the moon. I just hope that we think about it as we start doing these things. You know, the the way that I like to think about it is the way we treat Antarctica. You know, we've all kind of agreed as a planet that Antarctica is special in part because it's so distinct, in part because it's so austere. It's terrible there. You know, it's beautiful, but it's not like it's comfortable. And we've decided to go there, you know, temporarily with lots of training and preparation and maybe some money. There's tourism there, but it's not super common. It's expensive. There's a lot of science done there. It's difficult. It's also expensive. No one has laid claim to it. We've all sort of agreed as a world that it doesn't belong to a single country, even though certain countries have an easier time getting there than others. So I think it's actually a really good model for how we can think about the moon in the future you know, it's probably going to be a similar thing. It's going to be a few countries making our way up there and laying the foundations for others to piggyback on those efforts. Maybe some people make money with tourism or services or other sorts of economic, you know, needs up there. But it's not going to belong to one nation. It's not going to belong to one type of person or one industry. It's going to be for everyone. And I think we need to just be more thoughtful about what we're going to do with it and what we're going to do to it, even as we go back and, and maybe start mining, as you said, or, or extracting water or building a new settlement or building, you know, launch pads or landing pads and transforming its surface. One thing I think people may not think about often is that anything we do to the moon, we do forever. There is no wind up there. There's no erosion. There's no plate tectonics like we have on Earth that remakes this planet. There's no atmosphere. There's nothing that will erase what we do. And that's a huge responsibility to one another and to future generations of people who live here beside it and who might want to walk on it. And I hope we just keep that in mind as we start walking back up there. Well, uh, there's some places on the moon, some hot real estate that all the nations who are heading towards the moon are looking at. They want to plant their flag there. Uh, like I'm thinking of Shackelford's crater in the southern part of the moon. And um, apparently that yeah. has a, a lot of uh, 
total sunlight. It doesn't have a lunar night. Uh, Shackelford, of course, being named after the explorer that had the disastrous uh, experience. Uh, so the you know, are we trying to get to Shackelford's crater? Is that is a prime real estate place? Yeah, this is one of the craters in the south pole of the moon that is interesting for a few reasons. And it's in this south pole Aitken Basin, which is this lar the largest impact basin in the solar system. It's on the from the northern hemisphere, from where we are, it is like on the bottom of the moon, but it also reaches to the far side where we can't see. And this crater is angled in such a way because of the moon's orientation to the sun that part of it is in eternal light. So there are peaks on the rim of this crater that are always in the sun. So that's where you, that's where you want to put your you know, solar panels right there. Right. Yeah. You want to put your solar panels there and your charging station, you know, and then in the crater itself, it's eternally dark. And so there's never been sunlight, which means if there is primordial water or ice on the moon, that's a good place to look for it. So Shackleton Crater is a really popular place to imagine going. And yeah, the U.S. is looking at that area. China is looking at that area. Japan just landed a, a lander last week. Um, India landed a, a rover last fall. You know, uh, Russia has been up there and, and gone back. So there's a lot of spacefaring countries that are interested in getting to the moon, but especially the South Pole area, which is where we might have both lots of sunlight and lots of darkness. So Japan really get credited for having a successful landing on the moon, even though it landed upside down? Yeah, I mean, it landed, and it landed in a very precise area. That was one of the goals of that mission was a, a very precise landing. And they pulled that off. You know, yeah, it landed on its kind of belly up. But it's still communicating with Earth. It's getting telemetry. It's potentially going to wake up, depending on the angle of sunlight, um, as the, the lunar day, you know, turns to night. And, and then back today, it will have sunlight on its solar panels again, so it could potentially charge the batteries. And I think I would definitely call it a success. It's not, you know, the, quite as successful as other countries have been so far. But Japan also crashed a lander last year, so... This was another attempt by the same space agency, JAXA, to land something there safely, and they did. It you know, wasn't flawless, but it's still, I think, a huge win for Japan. How does the space race to the moon look to you? It's between the United States and China, who's going to get there, put another human being there first. Uh, uh, the United States is looking to put the first uh, woman on the moon. Yeah, I mean, if, if there is a sort of new space race rival, it's China right now, which is interested in landing Taikonauts there. Um, and they've been pretty cagey about their space program plans for a while, but that's a stated goal of the Chinese uh, National Space Agency is to land people up there. And one thing the NASA administrator says when he talks about Artemis is that we want to be there first. <laughs> you know, we want to be there first again. Um, we were first already, but it's been 50 plus years. And yeah, NASA would like to land the first woman and the first person of color on the moon. And, you know, I think those are somewhat marketing-derived goals. But I also think that there are valuable goals in that, which is that the moon represents humanity. It's a part of everybody. So visitors to it should also represent everybody. And if we're thoughtful about why we're going, then, you know, that's that's a a smarter way forward, I think, than just saying, let's go up there and stomp around just to prove to some other guy that we can. We already did that. And, you know, I think we can be a little bit more deliberate in the future. SpaceX uh, is will be uh, producing the lander. 
uh, using their Starship technology. Starship technology is yet uh, to hit orbit. Uh, where are you? What are your thoughts about where we are with Starship? Yeah, this is one reason why NASA just delayed the first Artemis crewed landing until no earlier than September of 2026, which I think probably is still ambitious. But yeah, the the, the whole Artemis architecture is really interesting and largely politically driven because they have this orbiter, this Orion capsule, which was not really built to be a lunar descent module the way Apollo was. Um, and so you have this sort of bifurcated process where you're going to land on a different ship and they've, they're building a space station that's been talked about for a long time. But this is one of NASA's plans is the lunar gateway, which is like a little orbiting outpost that you would theoretically transfer astronauts from Orion to the lunar gateway where they would get in the SpaceX starship and then land on the lunar surface. And then the starship would bring them back and then go back home on Orion and, you know, I, I don't claim to have a better idea, <laughs> um, but I think that, yeah, some of the issues with Starship have given NASA some some pause, at least, and, and made them hold off their timeline, uh, which is pretty ambitious. I think there there's more recognition that it needs to be a little bit more thoughtful and a little slower going to get things done right. There was a Pentagon official who once said, whoever controls the moon controls the Earth. It would give them a military advantage. Uh, there would be impossible to do a first strike, a nuclear strike against the moon, but the moon could deliver a first strike. Where, where are we with putting the military or the nukes on the moon? I think that's one of the more depressing futures for our use of the moon, and I would be sad if that's how we all imagine it going. Um, I think that's also pretty far afield, just technologically speaking. I mean, you know, it's difficult to launch rockets that it doesn't always go well. We mostly do it right now, but there are still accidents and there are still, you know, lots of reasons why putting nuclear warheads on a spacecraft is a very bad idea. And I think it's also difficult to build a launch capability from the moon that would be able to target Earth in a really accurate way. I, you know, that seems a little further afield, I think, than some of these other commercial efforts. But I don't think it's impossible. I hope that that's not what happens. I hope that the spacefaring countries of the world don't try to use the moon as a forward operating base, even though I think that's a possible future. If uh, you, know, you know about the dear moon, you know, they're putting some artists uh, to uh, orbit the moon. If they called you up and asked you if you wanted to join dear moon, <laughs> would you go? I think about this a lot, and I my answer has evolved over time. You know, when I was a kid, I went to space camp. I really wanted to be an astronaut. I spent time at Johnson Space Center, and I thought it was, like, so amazing. And now, as an adult, I'm like, I don't know. I have, I have small kids. I have responsibilities. It's dangerous. Um, it seems also a less crazy idea than it did when I was a kid. You know, it's easy to say, oh, yeah, sign me up. But when there's actual rockets launching actual people... I think uh, I might be less excited. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Rebecca Boyle, it's exciting either way, uh, going either in person or vicariously. Uh, we appreciate your book, Our Moon, How the Earth's Celestial Companion Transformed the Planet, Guided Evolution, and Made Us Who We Are. It was fun talking to you today. Thanks for having me. This was great. This is The Source on Texas Public Radio. I'm David Martin Davies. Thanks for listening.
This has been The Source on Texas Public Radio. The Source is hosted and produced by David Martin Davies. Kayla Padilla is our booking and engagement producer. Engineering support from Ruben Garcia, Jesse Reeves, and Steve Short. Dan Katz is TPR's Vice President of News. The Source is made possible with support from the Gladys and Ralph Lazarus Foundation. 